This episode is sponsored by Hulu. The reality queen herself, Lisa Vanderpump, has a new home on Hulu and has teamed up with them to bring you the newest, most exciting reality series yet, Vanderpump Villa. In an escape to the French countryside, Lisa and her staff work, live, and play together 24-7 while dealing with rivalry, romance, and misadventures. The series offers first-class luxury with world-class drama. Watch new episodes of Vanderpump Villa every Monday, now on Hulu. Welcome to So Bad It's Good with Ryan Bailey, presented by Betches Media. This is an exploration of all pop culture. From the classic reality TV moments of the past and present, to the latest Daily Mail headlines and everything in between. We'll dive into all the infamous and notorious messes you can't stop watching. We're looking at you, Tom Sandoval. Folks, welcome to another episode of So Bad It's Good with Ryan Bailey. This is your pal Ryan, and this is another Friday episode. Make it stop! How the heck is everybody doing? I don't know if you listened to this uh, before the Beverly Hills recap I did or after, but I'm just so glad that you're here. Um, Listen, I wanted to release this episode because I got to talk to a director of a documentary that I watched this week that I fell in love with. It meant so much to me. It is called Kiss the Future. And it's a 30-minute conversation that I got to have with the director, even though I wish it could have gone on for hours, because I just really, truly found him fascinating and the documentary fascinating. And what I love about you guys, what I love about the So Bad It's Good audience, is that we can vacillate wildly in uh, in, in everything that we love. We love reality shows. We love scripted television. We love documentaries. We love music. There's so much love. There is so much passion for, uh, you know, this art that we get to consume. Yeah, I even say some reality shows are art. But I love, I love this stuff that I talk about. And I love this documentary. And it's so great to be able to to not only talk about reality shows, but, you know, talk about other things with people that are out there just doing amazing, amazing work. So I'll talk about that documentary in a second, but I just wanted to thank you for this week. We had so many great episodes. We had the pop culture roundup at the beginning of the the week with uh, Sophie Ross, our bud Sophie. And then uh, we had uh, Lene Brody, who was just fascinating, the entertainment journalist who I uh, loved meeting. Uh, If you haven't checked out her episode, go check that out. And then I was going to release another episode, but then the Tom Sandoval New York Times article came out. So we did a full emergency episode about that, which you guys seem to like. And then yesterday we had two episodes. We had the Vanderpump Rules recap, but we also had um, a second part where Kate Casey came on and talked about Vanderpump Rules, but also Real Housewives of Miami, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills a bunch of Netflix documentaries and things that we need to watch and catch up on. So, you know, had to do two parts, but also I I wanted to put that second part out yesterday because Kate is doing a live show next week at the Irvine Improv next Wednesday, and I wanted to get the word out for her. So that was why we did the second episode yesterday, but always happy to talk to Kate, and I think it was a great conversation. And then today, uh, the first episode was Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and we had Bergie from The Traders on for a quick interview uh, on uh, right before we did the recap. So I know it's a lot, but whenever you're listening to this, I appreciate it. I know it's a lot, but I hope you enjoy all of this. I hope you get something out of it like I do. Uh, So thank you. Uh, Like I always say, if you like this podcast, consider uh, leaving it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We also do more podcasts, including Summer House 
Clubhouse recaps and the Traders recaps over on the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash so bad it's good. We have a Facebook group, So Bad It's Good with Ryan Bailey. And also there's a YouTube page where we'll put up certain interviews and recaps up there if you want to watch and have fun and watch the stupid faces that I make. Uh, and then directly after this interview with Nanad, uh, for Kiss the Future, I will be talking about Brandy Glanville and all of the things that happened today in regards to Bravo and Andy Cohen, and we'll we'll call it a day. But uh, yeah, are you excited to be at the weekend? I'm excited. I mean, I kind of got to work tomorrow and Saturday, but it's not as much work as I usually do. And I'm thinking about maybe going to Dave and Buster's, uh, which I don't usually go out of the house, but thinking about or thinking about going playing some video games and ski ball. So I'm kind of excited about that. But we'll see. We'll see what the day holds. Okay, so I want to talk about this documentary, Kiss the Future, in AMC movie theaters right now. It'll later be streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, but this is a critically acclaimed documentary about a creative community amid the siege of Sarajevo in the 90s and the inspiring resilience of its people through music and the tale of a post-war concert by the band U2. The director is Nanad Sassin Sane. Uh, this uh, movie, this documentary is produced, like I said, by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. It features Bono, The Edge, Adam Clayton, Christine, Christiane Amanpour, Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton. Um, and it is based on the, the film subject, Bill Carter, who wrote a book about this Fool's Rush In. But uh, it's, uh, it's a story set during the defiance, you know, the, the siege of Sarajevo during the Bosnian War. Uh, that Milosevic started, but the film focuses on this vibrant underground community who used music and art to affect change and garner global attention by ultimately inspiring an American aid worker, Bill Carter, to reach out to the world's biggest band, U2, to help raise awareness of the devastating conflict. And, uh, you know, growing up in the 90s, and U2 was such a big part of my younger years. I saw the Zoo TV tour. I remember this period of time. I remember them talking about Sarajevo and being a young person and, uh, you know, not knowing the history of the world, not knowing about war and being so lucky to be here in America where we don't have to deal with certain things like that. You know, the privilege of not having to be you know, walking down a street and not worry about sniper fire. I mean, I do know we have shootings, of course, obviously, and those keep seem, seem to keep increasing. And But it, it's such an interesting documentary because it teaches you about history, but it also frames it through uh, this band U2 at times. But also it left me with great... Uh, Great hope, and it reminded me of the resilience of the human spirit, how people can band together, how art can move people, it can affect change, and that just simple um, simple things like uh, camaraderie with your fellow man and woman, these things mean so much, and those little moments that we remember at the end of the day, those are what we take with us into the next life, you know, is that uh, even in the midst of the worst times in your life, other people can still bring hope into it. But this documentary, I thought I was going to watch like five minutes of it and then pick it back up. And I just watched it the whole way through. And I think you guys would dig it. If you get a chance, go see it. It's out this week, AMC theaters. And like I said, streaming later on Paramount plus, but it was an honor to speak to the director, Ninad Sisson Sane. And here he is. Thanks guys. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches. And honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash betches. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Welcome back to So Bad It's Good, presented by Betches Media. Folks, I was lucky enough yesterday to watch a very powerful moving documentary that is all about the human spirit. It is called Kiss the Future, and it has all the elements of things that I deeply care about. Learning about history and showing how art can give hope and help heal during conflict. This doc is star-studded. Not only is it produced by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, but it involves one of my favorite bands of all time, U2. And it shows how you can actually use music as a shield against actual dark forces. This is based on Bill Carter's memoir, Fools Rush In, and it's all about the 1990s siege of Sarajevo during the Bosnian War. Uh, it is truly an incredible story, and we are so lucky to have the director of this documentary, Nanad Sissin with us here today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, and thank you for that kind intro. Uh, I got to tell you, I, I was so moved by this. Uh, it, it was something that I wanted to keep going, even though it was so horrifying, being reminded of these events in Sarajevo in the 90s. How did you come to this project? Um, well, I was born in what was once Yugoslavia, so I'm from the region, and I have a Croatian father and a Serbian mother, and I was born in Slovenia, although it was Yugoslavia and an Albanian wife, and I was there through part of the war, and so it was something that had a big, big impact in, on me in my life, watching my country get torn apart by, you know, a, a politician's agenda for power, and how he divided us um, in, in, in a kind of falsified narrative and what I like to describe as kind of weaponized tribalism, you know, our kind of like most basic necessity is to feel loved and part of a community. And, you know, politicians can use that for their own design and interests and, and weaponize that and divide us. Right. So it's obvious it was something that very much affected me. And then living in the United States um, in 2017, it was the anniversary of the concert that you two played. And it was such a meaningful concert because of the fact that it was people, it was marked the end of the war and it was people all over the region and literally people who had been fighting and killing each other 
we're now singing and dancing together. Um, yeah. And I saw that. Sorry, if you wanted to go ahead. No, no. I just wanted to explain to the audience that the the film ends with the U2 Pop Mart tour coming into Sarajevo, which was kind of impossible to do after the war. And it was this unifying thing. And there's these beautiful moments that you get full body chills where Bono's voice is is completely cracking and he's losing it. And the audience sings for him. It unifies everybody after this horrible, horrible conflict that lasted for years. But you saw this moment at the very end and it tells the full story how we got to there. But you too plays this part of it because Bill Carter, you guys, you know, he's part of this underground scene in Sarajevo, Sarajevo, where they're partying underground music, punk rock music. The spirit of that is still living. And he gets over to Italy to convince Bono to he does an interview with Bono that is aired on Sarajevo TV and then puts the idea in Bono's head to someday play there. But I, I mean, it is so moving how you tell this story, but you're able to tell the story of the conflict and then intersperse it with how music played a part of that. Is that how you came upon Bill Carter's story? Uh, well, no, the way that it actually came about is I was at the time writing a screenplay with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And I mean, with Matt Damon for his company and Matt told me that he had had a relationship with uh, Bono and U2. And I knew that there was this extraordinary archive of footage that the world had never seen before. And I, th and I saw the concert as a way in to use as a cautionary tale what happened in my own country based on what I was seeing, how divided the United States was and polarized. So I then started doing research as to what are the different ways to be able to tell this story? Because you have to tell a story of the people from Sarajevo. And, you know, because many people were aware at that time of how they were, you know, this thriving music scene. And there was film directors that we didn't even cover in there that were sneaking their films underground to play at the Sarajevo Film Festival that started during the siege in a generator underground. There was like this extraordinary thriving art scene that was there. And Bill Carter showed up in the middle of that and experienced it. And that became a catalyst for him to go on this extraordinary journey to, you know, he saw a video on MTV where Bono put out a message saying to the Bosnian people, we won't be deaf, we won't be dumb, and we won't be blind to what's going on. And that triggered him to say, wait a minute, there's maybe something we can do here to draw more attention, because at the time, it wasn't really being covered by the media. But going back to how it came together, you know, after I asked Matt and, and Drew Vinton, who ran his company, uh, worked in his company, if they would be involved, and he said yes, I then came across Bill Carter's book as one of the ways to be able to tell this story. So then Bill Carter became involved and we started concepting and working on the story together. And so it, and then, you know, it became an evolution of development of finding the different stories and ways to be able to tell this. But the intent was always to show the story from the point of view of the Sarajevans, not the point of view from the foreigner, because that's the challenging thing, right? You have this extraordinary yeah. biography that Bill wrote, which is a beautiful book, but that's a story of a point of view from an American who chooses to go there, right? The U2 story is from the biggest band in the world that chooses to go there, right? There's a difference between choosing to go there and being on the ground and forced to deal with being shot at and taking your food and water away and all the circumstances that the people were living under. And that was the heart and core of the story. I mean, and guys, you know, he does interview these, the Bosnians that they kind of make it clear of, you know, they were used to snipers. They would have to walk on a certain side of the street. And there was like even a romantic gesture by a couple that is uh, a part of this documentary where the man would be outside of the woman in case there was sniper fire 
potentially he would get shot first. And it was kind of this beautiful romantic gesture, but also uh, shows you how horrifying these these extreme conditions they were living in, but they made it normal. They, they, he still had this spirit and that was, you know, uh, told through music and art and things of that nature, but it really did clearly, uh, paint that picture because even Bill having to gain the trust of those kids, you know, of the actual, you know, kids that lived there and, and formed these relationships. This is also, like I said, star studded. You of course have you two, you have three members of the band, you two, uh, doing talking heads throughout this and interspersing that with this footage from the zoo TV tour, which was one of my first stadium concerts as a kid. And they would do these really kind of, you know, it was a live TV satellite and Bill Carter, after he got there, they would actually put, um, you know, the, the people of Sarajevo on there. They would interview them and show them at their concerts. But at a certain point, it became so depressing. Uh, I think that's, you know, so depressing that they had to stop doing that because Bono makes a point of, we don't want to make this reality television where we're capitalizing off people's pain. Uh, I just thought that was so interesting, but it did give more attention to a war that was being forgotten about. Um, and they were trying to spur action. And you even have President Bill Clinton, you have Christine Amanpour. Why were those the people that you reached out to? I mean, I think it's obvious, but it's 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 well, insane to watch those people in this. What we wanted to do was show a collective memory from that period of time in history and all the different uh, all the different elements that affected what transpired in Sarajevo. So President Clinton was the president at the time, and it was his geopolitics policy that was affecting the people that were on the ground, whether or not and how and when the United States would get involved. Christian Anampur is the first place that she made a mark as a reporter being there for eight years on the ground under, you know, extreme jeopardy. And then we have, as I said, the Sarajevans and people who were living through it, who were forced to live through this. So what we wanted to do and what we, you know, aspired to do from the beginning was put the local punk rock band, Sictor, that was playing in these underground clubs in Sarajevo and one spoiler sorry they end up opening for you yeah the big it's enemy. so good you guys Sictor open they get to pick a couple of things that open up for it and Sictor is one of it and we've been following the lead singer of Sictor throughout the documentary so it's this moment of like hell yeah and they actually play the national anthem which they weren't supposed to do with the guitar it was amazing so what we wanted to do though was put Sictor on evil, equal footing as the biggest band in the world. And what I mean by that is usually in a documentary, there'll be a five minute or two minute buildup of showing all the newsreels and covers of Rolling Stones of how big U2 was to reestablish that. We didn't do any of that, right? What we wanted to do was have the president of the United States talk about why they couldn't get involved for four years in, into the conflict and have a girl immediately who was there at 13 years of age, Alma Katal, react to that, right? And yeah. then go from the local punk rock band to U2, right? It was that everybody is the same. They just have a different point of view and experience of how they were affected or affected the outcome of what transpired in Sarajevo. And that's the way the documentary is constructed. It's so beautifully constructed, folks. I mean, you really are going to be blown away. Uh, I will say one of the uh, 
sad parts of this at the very end is that you realize, even though we are decades and decades past this, that we are still dealing with all of these things in the world. I mean, we had the death of Navalny this past weekend, uh, Putin, obviously, Israel, Palestine. Is there something that you're in this and you're finishing this movie? Do you still have a sense of hope for the world? Uh, I mean, I got hope watching this, but at the same time, you look at the world today and we still put ourselves in these these situations that we see play out in this documentary. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, for me, it became extremely inspiring and hopeful because, you know, what 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 you realize, I hope, in watching the film is, is that even in the darkest of time, there's a necessity for humanity. There's a necessity to be connected. And that outlet for that was through music and art and helping others, right? So there's this beautiful humanity that thrived in Sarajevo. So yeah, these things continue to re-manifest themselves. And what was crazy for us is we set out to make a film about the last war in Europe. And then one month, one week before we started shooting, war in Europe broke up. So when people see this film, they're going to think that we made the film after Ukraine had started. And what was really moving was we went to Berlin with the film. And at that Berlin Film Festival, it was all about Ukraine. And that's something that the reporters talked to. Well, six months later, we went to the Rome Film Festival and the Middle East, uh, God, what was going on in Israel and, and Gaza started to happen. And, you know, I had people, people walking up to me and speaking on the different sides of the, of the issue, both feeling like the film informed what was happening to them. Right. So. So, yeah, for me, it was in this Sarajevans are extraordinarily inspiring. And one of the reasons is, is because also they found purpose. Like when things become very dark and grim, there's a necessity for people to have purpose in order to survive. And I think that's something that we try to, to share and show in the movie. You 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 accomplish that in spades. Uh, at the very end, too, there's a I think Bono is talking about this, about Peace is not made usually on a battlefield. It's made in these rooms with bad fluorescent lightings and these politicians. And we see, you know, Milosevic's surrender and them signing the uh, the accord and things. And I thought, you know, it, it's so important to remind people of the tedious process of actually brokering peace. Um, and that was an important point that sometimes I forget about in, in all of this war. And you forget about the people. And this documentary puts a face to those people. But it also just has that, it shows what a spirit they had. Is there something that you learned in making this documentary that you did not come in with? I mean, I think you probably had a real clear sense in your head, but what did you learn throughout the process of making this? I mean, I think, you know, I don't, I don't think it was really as apparent to me. It was until I got to the end that even in the darkest of time, how people use music and art and, you know, helping others in order to be able to survive, that they didn't just survive, those who lived thrived, you know, from being, from the purpose of being connected with community. Uh, it, I think it was very moving for all of us when we were making, there's many days when we were shooting this film that there wasn't a dry eye on the crew when we were watching it, because mm -hmm. these stories, and I'm not just talking about the horrific stories, we were talking, there was stories of this just beautiful humanity that, yeah would just give and become selfless and you know one of the other things that became very interesting and apparent through it is there's so many powerful women in our story there's so many from Christian Ampour to Alma Cattell to Vesna Samovic who now the woman who's profiled in the story is the Bosnian ambassador to Spain and Morocco right but what 
what we saw was there was, and this is a little bit of a caveman way to describe it, but in the beginning of the war, men were arguing a lot and looking for excuses and finding blame, whereas women actually took action. And you find that women somehow led this charge of finding purpose for community. And, you know, Vesna was like this local reporter and who would, you know, who would help the, the big international reporters who would come in there. But she would also gather um, during the siege of Sarajevo, the symphony and have them play. And she would then do these performances for children and she would do plays for children. And, you know, there was so much of this. I need to, I can't just point fingers and be a victim. I need to do something. I need to take action. I need to help my community. And that's the beauty that comes out of it. And one last kind of note about that to share, when Matt and I were talking, Matt Damon and I were talking about the edit of the film, one of the references that we both talked about, and when I brought it up, he actually did the scene of um, Shawshank Redemption. There's that extraordinary scene in Shawshank Redemption where they're on the roof and they're tarring the roof and they end up having a-, a The beer of the suds. They have a beer in the sunset. And yeah. I was like, Matt said to me, he goes, what's your, you know, after all this and you've seen all this and I'm so moved by it, what's your thesis? I was like, I don't know, man, like the Shawshank Redemption, that's like an extraordinary moment in a movie of, you know, humanity and like light winning over darkness. He's like, oh my God, if you can land that plane or if we can land this plane, we're there, right? So, and then he did the scene for me of, of on the, you know, of all the different actors on that roof over a phone. <laughs> of course he did. I need to see a Matt Damon one-man show of Shawshank Redemption. That would be exactly. incredible. <laughs> uh, but I will say, that's what you you make that great point of. Like, there is this uh, insane joy in the middle of this insanity. Uh, even, and what I think is such amazing about this documentary is also points out when you're telling stories that are in the last you know, three, uh, three to four decades, you have this wealth of actual like footage to be able to use. Like, you know, you start off and you're showing this scene underground where, you know, there's a drummer of a band that, that got like in, in conflict, loses his hand. You see a drumstick duct taped to his hand banging on the drums. It's such a powerful image. You see these people with their, their beers underground celebrating this music. You have a wedding between two of the documentary subjects. You have Miss Sarajevo, which was almost not tongue in cheek, but it was showing that we are celebrating beauty in the midst of this. We have a sense of humor about this. And there are so many moments of that that make all of this so much more powerful. Was there a lot of things that um, that you had to cut that you wanted to actually remain in? Because I believe there are so many stories of triumph. I mean, here's one that I haven't seen. There's many, many stories. And one is the what I mentioned before that the Sarajevo Film Festival started on a generator and underground. And, you know, it initially started from they wanted to play a movie to get people's minds off the shelling outside. So they put a generator underground and they played um, what's the Sharon Stone movie? Basic Instinct. And then <laughs> like, Wait a minute. If we could play Basic Instinct, filmmakers should be able to show their films. Let's start a film festival where there's no food, no water. People are going to get shot at if they come watch our movie. And then people like Alfonso Cuaron and Ben Benders and all these directors started sending their films to sneaking them in tunnels to go to play at the Sarajevo Film Festival. Bono in 95 and being as humble as he is and not wanting to ever come across as a hero, which was essential to him. In 95, he went in Sarajevo, he snuck into Sarajevo. It's New Year's Eve. 
It's still an extremely dangerous place. And Christiane Anampour tells a story that she's like on a bridge in a dangerous zone. And all of a sudden, a car pulls up, the door opens, and there's Bono. And she's like, what the F is Bono doing in Sarajevo? And she jumps in the car with, with Bono and they speed off. He ended up going to a club on New Year's Eve um, in 95 in Sarajevo. And there was a local punk rock band. And the guy who's in that band is our sound designer in our movie and played and sang until there, you can find images of it online. He sang and played music until six in the morning with his wife in this, in this club in the middle of the war. I mean, you know, it just kind of goes on and on and on. There's so much story we could have told, but we had to focus, you know, on one yeah. specific area. I mean, yeah, you just telling him that film festival story. I'm like, that's a whole other documentary. That's a whole other. I mean, that's what as you as a director trying to focus on that, that must have been a maddening job at a, at a time. And also because you are telling such an important story um, in terms of like, you know, you said Matt Damon, obviously producing this. Was he very involved on yes. this? Yeah. Matt and Drew Vinton, who works with him then at Pearl Street, now an artist equity extremely involved. I mean, he was the, they, I asked them, it only happened really because of them. They went to the band. They asked, you know, Bono, Matt had a relationship with Bono. He asked him for the rights to the footage, but before we could even get that and Bono said, yeah, we're in, it was still a process. You know, Drew Vinton and I, who works with Matt, had to fly, not had to, but we were asked to go to Dublin and sit down with uh, Adam and Edge uh, in Adam Clayton's home, which is where they, this extraordinary meeting we had, which is where they filmed, I mean, recorded Joshua Tree. And um, there was a lunch and we had to share with them what our intent was with the movie. Because the one thing you two didn't want is another movie about themselves. They're like, we don't, we're not going to, we're not supporting a film that's us going to play a concert in Sarajevo. Yeah. We're not doing a concert film of us in Sarajevo. We've been sitting on this art, this extraordinary archive of, you know, which they themselves say is one of their most meaningful concerts for the better part of 20 some years. We're not going to put that film out into the world. Right. And so we had this lunch and we had to share at the lunch what movie we wanted to make. And we had actually done some interviews and pre-recorded some interviews and played those interviews for them at the lunch. And what happened at the lunch was we basically said, we're going to make a film that's not the foreigner's point of view, even though there's this extraordinary book with Bill and he's the catalyst to the band. And we're not going to tell the film from the point of view, too. We're going to tell the film from the point of view of the musicians and the people who were dealing with this on the ground and were forced to do this. And at that point, they came in and said, yes. Then what Matt did, which was just so extraordinary and such a rare gift to have as a filmmaker that who knows if I'll ever have such an extraordinary gift again is you know, he, he created a very safe space to be able to work in, which you have to imagine with so many people involved and, and so many, everybody has in a different idea what this should be and a different agenda, right? And a different point of view on the way to tell the story. Yeah. And Matt is such an extraordinary storyteller. You know, he's won an Academy Award for Goodwill Hunting and we're seeing now over and over again how these guys keep putting out great stories is, you know, I would call him and I would say, listen, He'd never give me notes and this doesn't work or that doesn't work. I would call Matt and I would say, Matt, uh, I'd share some, I'd either share a story or idea or a piece of footage. And I'd say, this is my intent. This is how I want, this is why I'm intending to put this in there. What do you think about that, first of all? 
And then he would say, okay, I like the intent of that and how that serves a story or that doesn't make sense to me. And then after we did that step, I would say, does it work? You know, here's the intent. Does yeah. it work? Does it move you the way? Does it move the story? Does it move you? And then he would give me his feedback. So I got to do this with him through the whole telling of the film, right? So imagine having the person who you most admire in your craft, being able to call him and just being able to brainstorm and be like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And he he just made himself available to me. He was there from beginning to end doing that. And he and Drew and it's just a dream come true. And I believe know? a lot of experiences are, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, working a little bit in this field myself, a lot of experiences aren't like that. You aren't getting that kind of feedback and collaboration, which this obviously is born out of, which is so exciting. And um, uh, you too, by the way, I, I love what you said about them. They, they, this wasn't about like, let's get you to the, this, play this Sarajevo, like Sarajevo festival. It, it, it shows how you two has always been an entrance point to shine the light on other people. And you do, you're able to shine that light by teasing these you two aspects out there, but you do, you highlight these, these stories of the actual people. And, and I think that's, what's great. And I love that you two did that. And uh, you know, one you know, of my they, favorite they, bands. I just wanted to say one thing about them in terms of that is, you know, these guys take on a lot of, they take a lot of heat whenever they get involved with something. And the challenge is, I can't imagine what it would be like to be them. You, if you if you get involved, you take heat because you believe in something. If you don't get involved, you take heat, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's like I've been watching in the press in the last month, um, you know, how people are either supportive of statements that they've made or furious about statements that they've made. It's like you kind of can't win. And I think because they're activists and their intent is always one from a humanitarian standpoint that, you know, they're willing to take on the kind of personal jeopardy and heat for doing something that they believe in and just saying, you know, the end result is more important than the potential optics of the press or social media outrage that will come our way. And that's something they've always done. And I think, you know, one story is can I, you want me to share one more Bono story? I would, I would love it. Anything that you have to say. I mean, I'd love this documentary. Yes. Yeah, so a, a pretty special thing is we made the film. They hadn't seen any of the footage, and we sent them the film. This was a rough cut, right? So they had to give us notes. Are they going to allow us to put a film into the world? Are we going into the right direction? Are they going to say, "Oh my God, you guys have have you know really messed up"? This is we, you got to go down another direction. And we sent it to them, and because they were busy, Bono, I believe at the time, was doing his one man show, and you know they have so many things. It took, uh, I think, like three weeks to for me to hear back uh, as to <laughs> the reaction to it, which was one of the most excruciating three weeks <laughs> I you could possibly imagine, right? So I'm I'm really having a down day, and I'm like, oh my god, I really messed up. The film doesn't work. The band doesn't even want to respond to us. And I get a I'm in Whole Foods shopping with my wife, and I get a phone call. And I'm like, hello. And it's really loud. And I hear this voice and it says, hey, Nanat, it's Bono. I go, who? He goes, <laughs> Bono. And I go, oh, my God. And I ditched my wife and ran out of the whole place to go in the car because here's my one phone call in life with Bono. And I want to hear what he And he told me a story how he was in New York with his son. And his son had 15 minutes before he had to go catch up with some friends. And Bono said to his son, watch the movie with me. And his son said, OK, but I only got 15 minutes. 
So they sat down and we started, he, as he tells me the story, and he still hasn't told me if he likes the film or not. He starts with, this is his segue, right? And he's <laughs> three minutes. I look over and I see my son texting and he says, I'm going to stay for the rest of the film, Dad. And he said that his son stayed through the whole movie and that at the end of it, his son said to him, Dad, I had no idea the kind of situations you put yourself into in life sometimes, right? And, you know, they, they, it was a very beautiful, affectionate phone call and it was very supportive. And they, they ended up giving us no notes besides we want our mixer, um, sound mixer to mix the concert. So the concert sounds like a U2 concert and someone who's not part of the U2, you know, ecosystem to, to do that. So, you know, it was a very, very powerful, special moment to get that phone call from Bono and not get any notes. Uh, I mean, I, I can't even imagine that phone call. And I, I just have to say, I felt I re, uh, this band meant so much to me as a kid and I lost touch. And somehow I read Bono's autobiography this summer and then I was lucky enough to go to Vegas to see their Sphere show. But w that book really blew me a bit way about what an elder statesman Bono has become. And he's always been that way, but he's such a trusted voice. I remember as a kid listening to Miss Sarajevo with Luciana Pavarotti, which you have that clip in there from Passengers. And I remember as a kid, like looking into things because one of my favorite bands but this documentary you guys go see this documentary it's going to make you learn about the world it's going to make you learn about humanity good art holds a mirror up to humanity uh what do you hope this 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 uh comes out this week what do you hope people take away from this film Nanad? love i know that sounds cheesy it's not but no it's good it, you know that what we can do for each other Nanad, I got to tell you, I, I watched this yesterday and I was so tired when I got it because I didn't get a lot of sleep the night before. And I thought, I'm just going to start like Bond. I'm just going to start the first 10 minutes and get into it. Yeah, yeah. This thing, you guys, couldn't stop watching. Could I, I was actually emailing with uh, Betsy who who helped schedule this. And I said, "This I got 10 minutes left. This is amazing. This is incredible. I want like, and it's it's everything that I want life to be about is the celebration of humanity to show that in these dark times there are you know us as humans we have this bright light in us that can like power through these tough times and you too and matt dame and all that that's great because they actually shine a light to focus on these issues but you're right it's about the people and this kiss the future is about the people and i'm begging you to go see this movie it's out in amc theaters this friday but if you can't make it, it's eventually going to be streaming. But I am actually going to go see this on the big screen myself. I'm going to go watch this again because it meant so much to me, this viewing experience. Nanad, what is next for you as a filmmaker? Well, it, this, the, the screenplay that I that Matt Damon and those guys developed with me and I wrote, I'm going to be going to direct that movie now. And so oh, we're, about awesome. to, we're about to go out to cast and... Uh, and uh, hopefully be shooting that movie this summer is the plan. Uh, well, I will be a fan of yours for life now, sir. Uh, this just blew me <laughs> well, away. I well. mean, really, thank you can so I, much for doing it. One thing, one, yeah. Can I add one more thing? Or we, if we're out of time, you can cut no, it. No, no, no. I was just going to my next, but please, anything that you want to add. Yeah, so I think one of the reasons we would love for people to see it in the theater is because the way that we designed the movie was to make it, and you would not have gotten a chance to see this, experience this on your computer, was to make it a very immersive experience. And the way that we did that is one of the sound, our sound designer who, when you hear a bullet, it sounds a certain way. When you hear people running in the streets, it sounds a certain way. 
Are we, we found this guy who was a musician in a band in Sarajevo during the siege, was in that club that Bono showed up in, and he ended up becoming the sound designer for movies like Mission Impossible and Harry Potter and Moonage Daydream. While he was in the siege of Sarajevo, he recorded what it sounded like to be under siege for a historical record. Those are the sounds that you hear when you're listening to the movie. And the movie is mixed by Ron Bartlett, who makes Dune and won the Academy Award for that and is one of the greatest mixers of all time. And the images, there's these two extraordinary cinematographers who live. There's, of course, the Bill Carter archive from his story, which is you know very powerful and moving, like his Bono interview. But there's these two cinematographers who lived under siege and for two years filmed what it was like to be under siege in Sarajevo. So we merged those sounds with those images. And so the intent was not to make a documentary like a typical talking head documentary, but something that you would feel what it was like to be there and feel what it was like to be in those underground clubs. And, and that's what it builds to this you know, concert that U2 plays. And I won't ruin it for you, but... I, you know, let's not underestimate the power of that concert and what it was like to be there. And, you know, we have the footage of that in there as well. And hearing that in Dolby in a, in a, in a, in the proper theater really makes you experience oh. what it's been like being there. I mean, just even hearing like the, the beginning chords of Sunday, Bloody Sunday at the Red Rock Festival, how you like slowly bring that in. I was like, wow. So I, I really am so excited well i know excited is wrong probably the wrong word for such a harrowing story but i'm really passionate about seeing this again and i hope everybody out there will go see this i'm telling you i'm telling you this will move you in ways that you can't possibly imagine uh the film once again is called kiss the future i will put all of the information out i'll be putting it on my instagram i'll be bugging you to go see it for the next couple of weeks uh but thank you for all of your time today nanad it truly was an honor to talk to you as well thank you this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was a real honor to uh, to have him on. I hope you guys will check out that documentary. Very beautiful uh, piece of work. Now, let's talk about something completely different. And uh, listen, I'm a, a little embarrassed to even put this in this episode because that meant so much to me. But this is actually an important issue and things that we talk about. And that is regarding Brandy Glanville. Now, we've talked about her a lot on this podcast over the years. Uh, she has provided so many iconic moments in The Real Housewives. She was recently on the first season of The Traders. She did Ultimate Girls Trip. She was, uh, you know, popping back up on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Uh, and a thing that I think we can all agree with Brandy is that she always tries to quote unquote, bring it to the show, sometimes to her own detriment. And I think sometimes she has gotten caught up in bringing it. And there's always this sense of 
with Brandy, and I hope I'm not misspeaking, that she really needs this. She needs this. She wants back on the show. She needs this. And 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 sometimes you kind of feel bad for her. It's different than some of the other housewives that have always like tried to get back on their iteration of the show. Is that you sense that that sometimes Brandy, and this is even before any of this stuff with the Real Housewives Ultimate Girls Trip Morocco, that I don't think at this point will ever see the light of day. You always got the sense that um, you know that that at times she wasn't all right, that, that, that there was a lot of issues going on potentially behind the scenes. And, you know, I would always joke, um, but then, you know, it, it's not really funny anymore is that it always would see, it always seemed like she would drink a bunch of wine and then get on Twitter and just kind of say wild shit, misspell things. And it just seemed like, you know, it always seems like she kind of, you know, at times has been in a really dark place. So, uh, uh, you know, they did this Ultimate Girls Trip Morocco. Caroline Manzo, Brandy, uh, Alex McCord was coming back. You know, all of these people, uh, I think Camille is in this, uh, all of these ladies. And they were supposed to air this on uh, Peacock before they aired the Ultimate Girls Trip Roni edition. But this this thing happened with Caroline Manzo, and I did a whole segment on the show, I don't remember, maybe a month ago, with Caroline Manzo's court uh, documents in regards to her lawsuit, because I believe she is suing NBC Universal and Bravo. And uh, it was over allegations on what Brandy did to her during filming. Um, and it was very, very dark stuff. I read some of the court papers on this show, and it was just really traumatic. Uh, but the whole time, Brandy was like, release it, release it already. This is ruining my good name. I don't think she said good name, but she was like, she would say things like, I, this is affecting my livelihood because Brandy has her podcast. But, uh, you know, I don't think her podcast does nearly as well as it once did. She was writing books, you know, back in the day, drinking and tweeting, I believe was one of them that did well. But, uh, you know, she said she was forced to, to join OnlyFans because of this. And I've talked a lot about this on the show um, recently, especially is that it's sometimes frustrating that these real housewives, they'll get into this and then they'll expect that it's a ride that lasts forever that they will depend on this as their main source of income for the rest of their lives. And I just don't think you can do that ever. I, 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 I am more apt to enjoy a housewife that I know that I do not have to worry about for the rest of our lives, you know, because we do care about these people. I want Brandy to have a happy, healthy, successful life, but I don't want to feel like, you know, it needs to be on Bravo. It has to be on Bravo. There has to be other things that she can do. But also every time Brandy does pop up on screen, there is some kind of dramatic event that happens. I mean, Denise Richards season, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, you know, she said she slept with Denise Richards and was like, no, I swear to God. And I know she was hoping to come back on Beverly Hills and she didn't, but they were using her. Like I said, the traders, ultimate girls trip and people really enjoy Brandy, but even an ultimate girls trip, she got, she wild out, you know? And the thing is, as an audience, we kind of get like, it's a weird place for us, even as the audience, because we're like, we encourage some of this behavior. They do get rewarded for it. We're on Twitter or whatever it is and saying, oh, my God, amazing, iconic. And it's these moments that are really harrowing in retrospect about some, you know, somebody's really dark behavior when they're fucking hammered. And with Brandy, 
the alcohol thing, and especially if this lawsuit that I'm about to talk about goes forward, all of that stuff is going to come out there again. All of it, you know, is that there does seem to be, and this, uh, this is, there does, does seem to be a dependency on alcohol with her a little bit. I hope that's okay to say, um, or that's just, you know, from a layman's eye, that that's what it seems to be at times. And I do hope at some point she can get fully away from that. Um, even if she really enjoys it and thinks that it's not an issue, I think there's now enough instances and a lot of those instances are recorded that it does seem to be an issue. And so anyways, they're, they're not releasing Morocco or they, they put it on pause. I think once they're figuring out this Caroline Manzo situation and Brandy's like, I need this, I need this. You got to air it. You got to air it. You got to air it. And that wasn't happening. And I think I said on the show a month ago, I said, you know, watch Brandy's going to do something. And I even said, Brandy's going to join like Bethany Frankel's reality reckoning. Like I bet she is at some point because you're going to force her hand. If somebody is desperate, they're going to say, I don't feel like I have any other options. And if they don't have any other options in their life, they're going to say, listen, I've got to set myself up for the future. This is, this is, and, and by the way, we as humans, we really don't take personal responsibility a lot of the times. And I'm not saying it's all Brandy's fault, but I'm saying we don't take personal responsibility. We tend to blame everybody else but ourselves at times. So I would imagine, and also if there are other people in her ears going, well, fuck, it's Bravo, it's NBC, it's Andy Cohen, it's all of these things. I played ball. I was a good soldier. And, you know, I think she feels that to be true. And we see that with a lot of housewives, a lot of Bravo liberties, and not even just Bravo liberties, reality show stars, actors, musicians, people in our normal lives. We do the same behavior, but it's hard. And that's the thing. As reality stars keep getting, reality shows keep getting bigger and bigger and more successful, things like Scandal happens or Real Housewives of Salt Lake City happen, you know, we've created these stars. And in some cases, I think we've created monsters. And yes, you, the system as a whole, it is always, you know, any kind of corporation, there are going to be massive issues because I hate to break it to everybody out there. At the end of the day, <laughs> buckle up, folks. You're going to, this is going to blow you away. These companies, from everything that I've read, they just want to make money. Oh my God. They, they want to make money. That's it. They're not, you know all this kumbaya and like taking care of each other at the end of the day, these are corporations. So today, uh, I was actually working out shockingly enough. And by that, I mean, walking slowly on a treadmill like a man. And I was watching the news and holding my phone for comfort. And I got a TMZ push alert and it had Brandy Glanville's face on. And I was like, let me read what this article. So this is my first um, you know, this is my first, uh, time I had heard about this it says Brandy Glanville threatens to sue Bravo. And this is the article TMZ put out there. Brandy Glanville is putting Bravo's parent company and others on notice that she's prepared. Now just said this says she's prepared to take them to court over this whole girl's trip drama. She's been roped into and lays out her grievances in no uncertain terms in a letter that her attorneys fired off. Now, her attorneys, she is lawyered up, folks, and her lawyers, they are bigwigs, Mark Garagos and Brian Friedman. And they sent NBC Universal a demand letter Thursday that threatens a lawsuit on behalf of their client. And they're telling the network to preserve all potential evidence as Brandy prepares for what could be a messy legal battle. And 
when I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, Mark Aragos and Brian Friedman, that those names seem really familiar. And the verbiage of they're telling the network to preserve all potential evidence that also rang familiar. And I was like, okay, anyways, I, I kept going and it says the letter obtained by TMZ spells out exactly why Brandy is considered suing here. And according to her legal team, she feels like she's been chewed up and spit out by Bravo and all other parties involved in producing and airing a show that makes them millions. Their strong writing says, over the past years, Miss Glanville has been subjected to a vicious media campaign based on false, over the past year, based on false allegations of sexual misconduct, the false narrative, which NBC and Shed Media have apparently decided to foment arises from Miss Glanville's experience on Ultimate Girl Trip Morocco. Her attorneys add, while the experience has been a nightmare for Miss Glanville, it is far from the first time Miss Glanville has been used and abused by NBC, Bravo, Warner Brothers, and Shed Media. Indeed, Miss Glanville has long been taken advantage of by the institutions with which she is indelibly tied personally, professionally, financially, and in the public mind. Brandy, in the public... uh... You know, here on out, any casting on Bravo, everybody, make sure anybody you cast has, like, their their master's degree or some kind of business that they can go back to. Sorry, I'm angry. Brandy's lawyers claim that while she's been loyal to NBC University over the years, she's only received mistreatment in return, including the latest saga with fellow housewife Caroline Manzo, who recently sued Bravo, claiming she was the victim of sexual misconduct from Brandy during the filming of Morocco. Long story short, Brandy's attorney said the Caroline's narrative of being forcibly kissed and groped by Brandy during the filming of that show was actually consensual, with Brandy's team claiming Caroline was inviting that sort of behavior, which she also alleges was facilitated and even encouraged by producers during the filming. I think I said this about Caroline thing at the time. I was like, maybe the only time, only chance we'll be able to see Morocco is if we get called to be on the, the jury of any of these cases. There's another salacious allegation that Brandy's attorneys float in the letter they sent, evidence for which is not attached in their correspondence that invokes the name of Andy Cohen. Brandy's team claims that in 2022, Andy subjected Brandy to sexual harassment by sending her a video, one in which she claims he boasted of his intent to sleep with another Bravo star that night and allegedly inviting her to watch it all via FaceTime. Okay, so that sounds pretty damning, right? You're like, holy shit, what? Her attorneys characterize her role, but I want to say they don't attach the video. Her attorneys characterize her role in all this one of a sacrificial lamb, and they say Brandy isn't going to take it anymore, so she's telling Bravo and company to get ready to go to battle. She hasn't sued just yet, but it sounds like she's ready to go to war if they can't resolve things outside of court. We've reached out to NBCU for comment. So far, no word back. So that's the TMZ thing that I read. And I was like, whoa. And a lot of that sounded really familiar. The lawyer's name specifically. And I finally figured it out, uh, and I did a quick Google search because I'm uh, good with Google, <laughs> just putting in a couple of random words, and I f- figured it out. Ah, yes, that's right. July 28th, 2023, Bethany Frankel enlists power attorneys Brian Friedman and Mark Garagos in a fight for reality star protections. Quote, this is going to be a war. How random. How wild that Brandy Glanville hired the same two attorneys that Bethany Frankel has heading up the reality reckoning. So if you were to put two and two together, I would assume that Brandy has been reached out to by these two attorneys or by Bethany herself and saying, hey, you have been mistreated. You are a star. You are all of these things. You need to join this. We need we can get you money. 
we can protect you. We can do all of these things. It is so unfair how you've been treated. Um, you know, so many of these things, we were seeing this happen so many times. You are completely in the right and join this. And it's exactly even the same verbiage in that article that I wrote you, read you from TMZ that I, you know, read in this Bethany Frankel article. So she has hired those same two attorneys. Now you're like, Ryan, well, maybe she just likes those two attorneys and she reached out. Those really are powerhouse attorneys. Also, I want to uh, point out Mark Garagos. He represented uh, Scott Peterson at one point. Isn't that fascinating? So, um, yeah. So I think that Bethany Frankel is behind this. I think Brandy Glanville definitely is very upset about all this. It's got to be really scary. It's got to be, you know, you know, you know, you're being told all of these things. I will say Bravo does have the footage. I'm very curious what's going to happen because Caroline is suing and Brandy is threatening to sue. Um, and I was thinking, wow, they maybe, you know, maybe when I first read before I put it together with Bethany, I thought maybe she's looking for a quick settlement, you know. And then I found out, you know, oh, it's these attorneys. So, no, I think she's going to be part of a larger cause, which we still have not gotten. Like, it has been a long time since Rachel Levis, that whole interview process with, you know, Bethany has been making noise about this for a long time now. We still have not gotten a set of terms. And by the way, I am all for reality star protections in terms of mental health specifically. Uh, I think there is probably a world in which better wages can be got. And also as streaming gets more powerful, uh, a different pay scale. I think that for actors as well, not just reality stars, but actors, there do need to be protections put in place. But I also want to point out to an interview I did uh, this past year with Nick Thompson from Love is Blind. He has a foundation called the You Can Foundation, U-C-A-N-N. And I would look that up because they are doing some great work out there and especially in the mental health capacity. So if reality stars are looking uh, to, you know, to needing protection, to needing mental health, you can reach out to this UCAN Foundation. And this Nick Thompson seems like a really sharp guy that I had a great conversation with. And I went on their website, I did some research, and I've even seen some testimonials from other reality stars about this. And I will say, somebody did tell me that they tried to work with Bethany and saying, hey, we've got this foundation set up. Why don't you come work with us? We've already got this system in place. We're trying to work. We're trying to do this. And uh, and and Bethany was wanting to go her own way. And my thing is, I know there's a lot of Bethany Frankel fans out there. And I know you, some of you get upset when I say Frankel instead of Frankel, but that's okay. Um, is that I don't believe... I think this is a very important issue, but I've never believed the intentions of the person heading it up. And sometimes I've thought at the end of the day, there is a reason why she alone wants to be headed this up. And if you've seen Bethany, and we've all been fans of Bethany at one point in our reality show viewing careers, is uh, at the end of the day, as much as she hates Andy Cohen all of a sudden, she wants to be Andy Cohen. You know, and Bethany, for as popular as you might think she is, remember, there have been so many shows that she's even pitched to Bravo that they have not picked up. You know, there have been so many professional relationships that Bethany has squandered along the way that her reputation isn't as uh, sterling silver as she might want you to believe. Um, so it made me suspect in some ways and the fact that we still haven't had any kind of list of demands, but I will say, I think anything, and especially when you're dealing with a corporation, 
you know, you're chipping away at things. And I hate to even compare it to the director of Kiss the Future, but there was a quote in this of like, change happens very slowly. It happens in these like stupid boardrooms under fluorescent lighting of going back and forth with these boring details. And, you know, we've now know that Bravo and NBC Universal, you know, have curtailed drinking in certain ways. They've put more protections in place, supposedly. And they do. They they do need to put those in place. They do need to learn. They do need to go, this is happening. We need to stop this. How do we do it? How do we protect the people involved? And I just imagine what an ins- what a hard process that is because even what was acceptable like season 3 of Vanderpump Rules which was like was that the slap season you know if Stasi had slapped Christian now they would no longer be on reality television we're in a different world now than we were 15 16 13 years ago you know things change you know we don't know everything at the time and and social um Societal things change as years go on. We see it all the time. And I don't mean quote unquote woke. It's just that we start growing up a little bit more. We start seeing the world in a different way. And uh, so I think there is a lot of room to change, but I'm not saying that in a, oh, fuck these guys, fuck Andy Cohen, fuck these guys. No, there's a room, there's a conversation to be had. Um, but sometimes you have to look at the people having these conversations, the motivations behind them. And, you know, Bethany knows above anybody, if you're going up against a corporation, cause it's not just Bravo, it's NBC universal NBC, but think universal. You guys, these are, this, these are big, big companies. And at the end of the day, they do want to make money. They want to profit off of their, their investments. Okay. So I think it's going to be reality reckoning involved. Now, there's another part of this that Andy then immediately responded a couple hours later and simply wrote a tweet. And he wrote this. The video which that she's referring to, I guess in this letter, and he says the video shows Kate Chastain and I very clearly joking to Brandy. It was absolutely meant in jest, and Brandy's response clearly communicated she was in on the joke. That said, it was totally inappropriate, and I apologize. So he wrote this at 4.12 p.m. today, um, and that's it. Now, right off the bat, yeah, Andy's got to stop. Andy can't do that. And although uh, Andy is not the head of Bravo anymore, I hate to break the Andy is an executive producer on a lot of the shows. He's not an executive producer on Vanderpump Rules. He's not an executive. There's a lot of shows he's not an executive producer on anymore. Um, and, uh, he is a figurehead. He is a very, he is one of the most important parts of Bravo. And he's one of the reasons why I do actually watch Bravo. I know Andy gets a lot of hate. Um, and because he is also that figurehead, anything that happens is Andy's fault. But, uh, I do have to say there are higher ups at Bravo than Andy Cohen, but he is going to take this. Now it is completely unacceptable no matter how, like, cause that's it. Andy seems like this fun loving guy that you do want to party with. And that probably is a lot of fun to party with, but yeah, he is that figurehead. You can't be making jokes. You can't be like, and, and by the way, you know, Brandy, like Brandy's known for making sexual jokes. Brandy hits on everybody. We've seen that it's recorded. And by the way, if it does go to trial, all that shit is going to be used. And we will probably see this video and Brandy Glanville's response. And Andy was, had no problem immediately talking about this. 
and saying like, this is what happened. And I do wonder if Kate Chastain was like, why am I involved now? Why did you name drop me? But yeah, uh, you know, there is that thing where he, I don't know, you got to think about context. So when you read that thing about Brandy in that letter, you're like, holy fucking shit. Is this like a Matt Lauer situation? Is this a holy, there is this power dynamic and Andy does have to be, uh, you know, I'm sure by the end of this year, he will curtail a lot of his communication with housewives, but they all want a piece of him. I saw him get attacked at BravoCon at that Jeff Lewis party. Like everybody wants to talk to Andy and I can't, I mean, that's gotta be a lot of fun to be King, to be the Lauren Michaels. But at the same time, it's gotta be an insane amount of pressure too, because as this network gets more and more popular, people are going to become more um, stringent in how they view his position. And he's got to become that way as well. And you don't want to lose that fun that he brings to like watch what happens live and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, when you have these coordinated attacks from people that you used to trust, like Bethany Frankel, I mean, it's hard. I would imagine that there is an element to him and it's business. So we don't really need to delve into this, but I imagine there's a lot of hurt. And even when he's fucked up, you know, it's like, listen, this is what I thought I was doing, but that doesn't matter when you're the boss. That doesn't matter. And he's got to, uh, obviously, and he took responsibility, he apologized, and he's got to stop that shit. There's no more jokes. There just can't be. Even if you're the funnest guy in the world, I mean, shit, this guy even gets his personal life picked apart. Like somebody was videoing him during gay pride last year or the year before, you know, like, you know, macking on some dude. And it's like such an invasion of fucking privacy. It was so gross. It's like, dude, you know, is that like, he, he like, I, <laughs> You know, God, I've seen every, like, think about all you guys out there. You've all had bad experiences somewhere. Oh my God, I was a little too tipsy. I made it with somebody at a bar, made it out with somebody at a club. Like, just imagine then that gets spread all around. And by the way, I know this isn't a boohoo Andy Cohen because he's doing just fine. But I do want to put some context to these things. And I think there is a world in which Andy needs to completely change certain parts of his behavior. Uh, And he just needs to stop you know, he can be nice to Bravo celebrities and I'm certainly nobody to tell him what to do, but, uh, he's got, he has enough other, just hang out with John Mayer and Anderson Cooper more. You got enough friends that aren't on Bravo that you can just, you know, make your funny haha jokes with them and just never with Bravo celebrities because you are that figurehead. Um, anyways, we learn important lessons through as we go through life. Right. Okay. So then Bethany Frankel, Frankel, she does a TikTok just about an hour or two ago because she's up in bed, probably just eating seafood. Um, actually, I don't think she was chewing in this video. I'm going to play the audio to this, and I think she makes some points. She does not say anything about Brandy hiring the same lawyers as Reality Reckoning, but she's like, oh, isn't it? This? She's making all of these points. I will say Bethany is definitely one of the people behind this. And she does want to cast out on Andy Cohen and Bravo. She wants to make them look like the villains. She wants all of these things that she realized deep into her reality show career. But I do think, and it's hard when celebrity gets involved with anything and you have these big egos of reality stars, it's hard for anybody to take personal responsibility or ever look at their place in all of this stuff when money is involved and when big money is involved. You know, it's like, oh, they're making millions. Why am I not making millions? I think there's always some kind of ignorance and Bethany knows better. Um, but she does make some points and I want to play this, uh, for you cause I want to be fair to her points. Um, and then we'll talk about this and then we'll call it a day. Right. Dun, dun, dun. I'm just typing Bethany Frankel on my TikTok. I'm shocked. I didn't block her yet. That's a song that I just made. 
Brandy and Andy. So Brandy Glanville is taking legal action against Andy Cohen and Bravo for several reasons. One being that Andy sent her an inappropriate video that was sexual in nature, which he has admitted to. He has apologized. He said it was inappropriate, but he was kidding. <clears throat> and there have been many legal actions against Bravo, from Nene to Caroline to Rachel from VPR, other people from VPR, several people from Below Deck. Um, so there's been an onslaught. And the interesting thing here is that Andy was compared to Matt Lauer in... Okay, now I want to point out that she's like, the interesting thing here is Andy was compared to Matt Lauer. Yeah, you compared him to Matt Lauer. That's the interesting thing. And that, and by the way, this is how PR works, you guys. They write these letters. They wanted to get covered by Daily Mail, TMZ. They want us to pick it up. They want us to make our little TikToks about it. They want us to keep saying things like Matt Lauer. And if you look at the Matt Lauer case, this dude was fucking people in his office that worked for him. There is a bit of a difference, and I do want to throw that out there. The article... And the thing about Matt Lauer was that he was abusing his power in his position because he was making $30 million a year. He was making it rain and no one was going to be able to mess around with Matt Lauer and he could discard anyone he wanted. He could just decide someone was going to work there or not work there. I've been there many times. And um, Andy Cohen is in a position of power. He's an executive producer. He uh, is on several different shows. He is a very powerful talent. Even the show that he's the talent on Watch What Happens Live, he's in charge. He's running the show and deciding what questions to ask and to not ask. And he also decides who gets hired, who gets fired, what people get paid. And he has different relationships with each housewife. So he was would talk about Judaism with Jill, business with me. He parties with certain Bravo celebrities. He's got sort of sex talk with certain Bravo celebrities and he's one of the gang when it's convenient. Wait, I want to say it's really funny that it, like he's, oh, Andy talks Judaism with Jill, business with me. Oh yeah. Business. With, you're the best business. He only talks business with you. I just thought it was funny. She used herself in the business context. And in the power position, also when it's convenient. It's not like he's Tom Sandoval and he's, you know, sending Brandy a sexy message. He's the man writing the checks and sealing the deals and saying, get this person out of here. So that's the question when there's someone who is in a position of power crossing the line. And where is that line? So what do you guys think? It's also really interesting that all of these people filing these actions are women. And I think about when J-Law and Amy Schumer, who I love, and Julia Roberts, these female empowerment figures are celebrating and glamorizing this medium um, that is fraught with issues that are not very female empowering. So what do you think about that? Okay. Well, listen, first off, I'm a man, so it's very different for me to speak on women's issues. So that's one thing. Um, but I will say what I think about that is that Bravo is primarily uh, dominated by uh, female stars. So there are going to be people along the way, um, like your ninis, like Rachel, 
You know, uh, I mean, also, you know, unfortunately, there are aspects of this world that are still very much a man's world. And we see the even with Lisa Vanderpump and how she treats the men of Vanderpump rules as opposed to the women. Um, but I think it's interesting that Bethany, after 13 years, has realized this out of the blue. Um, she's been a smart cookie, as she would call herself, the entire way through. Um, and, uh, in the last year and, uh, last year she realized that this is happening. This is what was been happening. Um, and, and now is making it a woman's issue. And I think there is room for that conversation to be had, but I think she's also being a little disingenuous in her involvement, especially with this one. So, I mean, it almost comes off. She's like, oh, wow, look at Brandy doing this all of a sudden when I think she is a part of Brandy doing this to begin with. Um, but it's all about better mental health care, better working conditions, right? But I don't know. What do you, I mean, like, I'll do a Bethany Frankel. What do you guys think? What do you guys think? Uh, that's really it. And this will be a legal issue. And at the end of the day, I feel like this is more about money than it is about better working conditions and things of that nature. But I will say when you have egos involved and you have celebrity involved and TV involved, it's different than a lot of our jobs um, in that... Uh, you know, they feel like they're famous. They feel like they deserve so much more and they, they, they need a paycheck potentially forever. And I think Brandy is probably in a very scary place in her life right now where money actually is needed. And all of a sudden, even though we've seen years and years of behavior, and that's a thing where Bravo does have to take a look at themselves. Have we encouraged this behavior? Have we rewarded this behavior? And have we possibly put somebody that is a very troubled person on screen again and again and again when we should have stopped her from coming on a long time ago? Because like I said, they liked Brandy. They did keep using her. And we'll find out more about that. But that is what is happening. I just sometimes get frustrated with Bethany um, because I do not sometimes believe she should be the voice of this whole thing. But I will say on that other hand, sometimes the voices that are the the loudest and potentially sometimes, you know, a little annoying can actually make things happen. I just want to make sure that she's going to make the right things happen. Is that fair to say? I hope so. Okay, so we'll cover more as this uh, moves on. And I know you guys will have a lot of brilliant thoughts and comments that hopefully you'll share with me and the audience. Um, and we'll, we'll continue this conversation. Okay, you guys. Oh my God, I'm exhausted. It's 1.30 in the morning. Um, I do want to say... Um, and I don't even know if anybody's listening anymore or even listening to this episode, but today is the six months anniversary of my mom, Becky Bailey's, uh, passing. And, uh, I was, I don't know if I said, I mean, I think I made an uh, Instagram story. I do this diary called the five minute journal every day. And it does this thing where it'll, it'll open up. It's on my phone. It's not written down. It's, you know, digital. And it'll say on this day like six months ago or on this day, six years ago. And you can go through what you wrote that day. And uh, it's sometimes wild because it'll just fucking hit you sometimes and you're not prepared for it. You're like, oh no, you know, like, oh, I did that like six months ago. But uh, I opened it the other day and I realized we were in the final week or weeks of my mom where I was, staying in Arizona and uh it was uh oh it's funny 
I'm looking at it right now. Here's that July 23rd. I put the people post that day of <laughs> Kyle and Mauricio splitting. Sorry, that's not funny. Um, but I'm looking through this. I'm trying to find it, and I'm seeing so many pictures because I spent so much time in Arizona the past year, luckily. Um, hmm. Sorry, you guys. I'm just trying to find it. Um, okay, yeah. <sighs> This was uh so this was what I did yesterday. It's like six months ago. It was August twenty second, twenty twenty three, and they have you take a picture, you know, or you can put a picture up. Like I said, I had that People magazine one, but this was uh, a picture. So the room that my my parents stayed in, my mom had this uh, this chair, uh, this love chair that she was uh, would only be comfortable in, and she refused to get a medical bed. Until, it, you know, she was completely out of it. And then we got one the last, she was only had, had to be in that bed two days, actually. So she was in this bed, but she was only, she didn't want to sleep in the bed. She was only comfortable in this love seat. And it was, and my dad slept on a couch in the living room. And I think he still does. He won't go into that bedroom. Um, even though, but anyways, and, uh. So the bed was still in there and I would lay on the bed and I would just watch her and I would see my mom's little head with little tufts of hair and I would just watch her. And, uh, you know, there's these posters by the bathroom. It said team Becky that all her friends had made and signed. And then there was like this, you know, number for the hospice center. If there was any emergencies and the information that I would have to give to, uh, to give through to them. But this was the last week, uh, she died today six months ago but this was august 22nd and it says uh they always have a positive quote at the top and it says you cannot be lonely if you like the person you are alone with uh and then you write three things that you're grateful for and these were the three things my mom and all she's done for me in this life because at this point i knew um <laughs> i wrote my podcast <laughs> I was grateful for my podcast and I was grateful for the future because I was about to start with batches and things like that. And, uh, what I will do to make today great. <laughs> uh, one was podcast, uh, do a recap of the real Housewives in New York podcast. I always do that. What I'll do to make today great. And it's always podcast, go on a walk. And especially in that last week of my mom's life, I would try to go on these walks outside and it was really muggy and um, monsoony. Um, and but my my blood pressure was like all over the map. I was not getting a lot of sleep. None of us were. Um, and so I would try to go on these walks. And the third one was like, just be with mom. But mom was not in a, you know, she couldn't really... It was really, I've told you guys these stories, but it was really insane. And her communication, it, you couldn't have a conversation with her anymore. And it was, um, it was very intense because she would say things where she would, she thought she would be taking medicine and she would just keep making the same motion again and again, even after we gave her the medicine. Cause she was paranoid too, that we were potentially poisoning her and, uh, you, you'd give her, you'd put her in the mouth like, mom, you got it, you got it. And, uh, but then she would do these things with her hand. Like she was there was nothing in her hand, but that she was picking up pills, picking up pills, putting it in her mouth. And she was just picking up air. And we'd be like, mom, you already took it. You already took it. You already took it. <clears throat> and, uh, 
Then it has you write daily affirmations. And for this day, I wrote, I can do this, stay strong. And the highlight, then at the end of the day, you, you come back and you write your highlights of the day and said, I did, I podcasted New York and I took notes on the show. Uh, and then my second highlight of the day was took care of mom. That was some of the most intense moments of my life. And, you know, I've talked about with his dad because Kara wasn't my sister, you know, she was coming in to check, but she then, you know, came in, um, but it was me and my dad at night and during the day. And there was just, I mean, it was just really think about the person, one of the people that you love the most in this world going through something so unexplainable and you're watching like a human body break down and somebody's mind completely go. And, you know, me and dad are yelling. It's, I mean, it's funny yelling at each other and you're having to change your mom's diaper or, um, you know, you know, we'd have to move her and we didn't know what we were like two bumbling idiots because the hospice, they were so amazing, but they were on a call basis, you know, like you call them and, you know, so we were taking and we, you know, I remember having to dead of deadlift my mom and my dad trying to put this diaper on and he's like, how do you put the fucking diaper? Like, I mean, it was, it was just wild. And then the third highlight of the day, and this is when I could tell I was just completely out of it. I said, I don't know. It was a really rough day. I just don't know. I think I texted a bunch of people. I don't know <laughs> because that, uh, and, and, and then after this, it was, it was, uh, this was Tuesday, August 22nd. And then three days later she passed. And this is the sixth month of that. Um, I put this at the end so you guys don't have to listen to it, but it's helpful for me to talk about it. Um, hmm. Three days later she passed. Yeah. And I was just already so out of it. And like, I just, it, it, you know, the, the, you know, cause the, that was Tuesday and the Friday before we were talking, we shared a glass of wine on Friday, the hospice had come, but my mom even sat down with the hospice. And then that, that Friday, everything was just, uh, it just every day got worse and worse and worse. But even then they said, she's still got a couple months, but she's going to be like, not able to communicate, not able to. And, and so I thought I had so much more time. I thought we were just going to slowly watch her as the body shuts down and doesn't get its nutrients and things like this. And my sister who was a nurse was like, yeah, you know, you know, it looks like her skin's still good. It looks like the oxygen, I have things that I don't even know anything about. Um, but that was like, I said, I think I texted a lot of people. I don't know. Like I will say it was like that week up until like th maybe two and a half weeks later. Like, I don't even, I don't, there are aspects of once she passed that I just don't remember, you know? And if somebody was like, oh, we texted during that time. I'm like, oh, did we? I'll be like, because I'll be like, oh, we haven't talked in six months. Like, no, we talked um, or we haven't talked in like a year. No, we talked, um, you know, right after your mom. I'm like, I, I'm so sorry. I don't remember that at all. I just remember like just, you know, like when you're moaning on the inside, even if you're not physically vocalizing it on the outside, that's what it just felt like a long moan. Like, uh, uh. <laughs> And Rebecca wasn't with me at that point. So I was there. It was just me and dad. And then my sister moved in, not moved in, but like stayed with us the next day. You know, she has her own family, but she was, I mean, and then she was just, she's just amazing. Um, but it was just such a wild thing. And I got to tell you, you know, six months, there's aspects of it feel like just yesterday. And, uh, you know, in some ways I'm doing really good. And in some ways I'm doing really bad. Uh, it's been, for so many reasons, the toughest year that I've ever had in my life. 
And that's how it probably should be too. Man, but I miss her so much. There is not a day that I don't think 10 times like, oh, I should text her about this. I should, you know, and I, I hear this from a lot of people that this is very common. Uh, I worry about my dad all the time. Um, and it's one of those things. It's the phantom limb. And, you know, there have been times, like I've said before, where I've wished I could have dreams about her and where I've called out for her. Please help me. Please help this situation. Please tell people to stop hating me, please. And, uh, yeah, sometimes you feel like she's not there. But then you'll see a picture or you'll think about a memory. And that's why it's good to actually talk about memories and talk about them with your family and your friends, because that's what it all uh, is all about. You know, you know, memories are the life that we lived with other people. But as weird as it is, and I know, you know, I am actually not that big of a communicator in my actual life. And she was one of the only people that I did actually communicate with on a daily basis. There's just a, a handful of people that I do. Um, so I'm, you know, missing that person a lot. And it's still really hard to not have that person for guidance and all that stuff. And you guys know that you've been through this in ways yourselves. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. But we're at the end of the, I know I gave you so many podcasts this week, too much. Um, but if you are listening to this, pour one out for Becky Bailey tonight or this weekend, give her a little shout out. Hopefully she's somewhere listening and will feel some kind of, maybe she'll get a bonus and bonus points in heaven. She can cash those in for something, but I don't know. I, I will say too, is that I feel, I feel so I I'm the least it's not like I ever go around thinking I'm funny, but there were times like a year and a half ago or a year ago where I felt like I'm being, there's some really funny stuff that I'm saying or thinking about, or even like memes that I made. I was like, oh, that's, uh, that's pretty fun. I'm kind of proud my mind came up with that goofy joke. And I'm not phoning this in, this podcast in or any of the podcasts. I did. I'm not phoning it in, but sometimes I feel like I just don't have it anymore. And especially like making memes, like it's like pulling teeth for my brain to think of like, to be quick or to think of the silliest joke. Like it is like pulling teeth for my mind and it just doesn't. And that's the part that I also hope will come back someday. Uh, Cause sometimes I just don't feel like I got it anymore. Not that I ever had it, but sometimes you just feel like, you know, you're like, oh damn, hope I get that back. But anyways, just wanted to say that at the end of the show, because uh, it is Friday and it has been six months. And uh, man, and thank you to all the kind people that have reached out and sent letters to my mom and all of that stuff. Uh, yeah. Love you guys. Talk to you on Monday. Bye. So Bad It's Good is a Betches Media production. The show is hosted and produced by me, Ryan Bailey, with Meditza Lopez and Sandra Fryer. Additional support provided by Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Rebecca Steinberg. Guest booking by Ali Friedlander. Video promotion by Laura Valencia. Be sure to send us your emails at SoBadIt'sGoodWithRyanBailey at gmail.com and follow the show at SoBadIt'sGoodWithRyanBailey on Instagram. And for additional craziness, go to Patreon.com forward slash SoBadIt'sGood. Stay bad, baddies.
Thank you to our sponsor, Hulu. Their new reality series, Vanderpump Villa, is an unfiltered portrait of what it is like to work in the glamorous French countryside while striving to impress Lisa Vanderpump. As guests arrive for their lavish vacation, the Vanderpump Villa staff are pushed to their limits, ready to cater to every whim, all the while dealing with rivalry, romance, and misadventures. Watch new episodes of Vanderpump Villa every Monday, now on Hulu. Betches.